Hey, this is Rich. Welcome to the VU Church Podcast. I'm excited to continue our micro-collection of talks here for it. In today's message, The Jesus Method, I explore the everyday evangelism of Jesus. As we study his life, we find that Jesus' mission to seek and save those that are lost was accomplished through his methods, eating and drinking. What to you and I may seem like mundane moments had a radical impact. Our ordinary acts are attached to supernatural opportunities as we love people through hospitality. God is inviting you to be a part of his story. If this ministry has blessed you, consider giving by clicking the link in the podcast description or visiting vuchurch.com slash give. I'm glad you're here. Let's lean into the message together. Last week, I kicked off what I have uh, titled a micro collection. And that's just a cool way to say that I just had a two-part sermon. Just uh, last week was part one, and uh, today is part two. And last week, I preached a, me- uh, a message called the co-mission, the great co-mission. And I talked to you about the mission of Jesus. And-, and today, part two in this collection, here for it. This idea of what are you here for? Like, are you a part of it? Are you supporting what's taking place here at Vu Church? Uh, today, part two, I, I want to preach from the thought, the Jesus method. The Jesus Method. Sort of an interesting title, but I think it's going to encourage you today. I think it's going to be helpful as we look at God's Word. But just to define right up front, this word method, this is what the word method means. It means a procedure, a technique, or a way of doing something, especially in accordance with a definite plan. So all of us out there, we all have methods to certain things. Some of you... How many know there's a method to your madness, right? Come on, somebody. Um, I have methods and I have ideas and systems towards the plan that I have for my life. I I have methods for how I start my morning. Um, I have uh, methods for how I I, I travel. Anyone out there? I I travel like every other week, so I have a method to how I travel. And if you travel with me, you're gonna adopt that method as well. Um, I, I don't believe in checking bags. How many know checking bags? That's where stuff gets scary. Uh, I'll travel the world with a carry-on bag, amen? Um, There's a method to it. My latest method is putting my kids to sleep. Any parents out there, you got a method for this? Some of you are like, yeah, I drug them, I know. Okay, um, there's a a whole method of putting my my, my two boys to sleep. Like it's it's a process. There is a, I have a plan, which is, go to sleep, uh, but in order to get them to go to sleep, there, there, there's a method to, to reaching that result. Um, it starts with about 30 minutes before bedtime going, hey guys, in 30 minutes, we're going to sleep. To which my son goes, three more minutes. I'm like, yeah, dude, I just said 30, okay? Um, he doesn't understand time, but three more minutes to him just means you know, more time. And so finally, after the 30 minutes, it's like, you know, I've warmed him up, and then I get the bottles. And it's like, all right, boys, bottles. They're like, yeah, when these kids, these kids look like sophomores in college, spring break, Daytona Beach with bottles. Bottles! I'm like, bro, chill out, okay? So we, we, we give them the bottles and then we go into the room and before they lay down the, the bed, they go, books, 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 because it's all about staying awake. And so now my oldest son, Wyatt, we have a bookshelf and he wants to go to the highest shelf. So he goes, dad, up. It doesn't matter. He doesn't actually want a particular book from that top shelf. He just wants to get on dad's shoulders. And so part of the method is I put him on my shoulders and he grabs his book and Wilde, who can't speak English, is, ha, 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 ha. And he grabs something and I have to interpret that. It's, it's a version of speaking in tongues. He's very, very spiritual. <laughs> and, and then we lay down and, and, and Wyatt goes, Wilde's book first, Wilde's book first. And so I try to read Wilde's book, but Wilde's pouring his bottle on me. He looks like he just won the World Series, but he didn't. And 
then he, he gets up out of the bed and I try to read to Wyatt and Wilde's spinning around. I'm like, okay, back in here. And finally we, 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 finish, we, we, we finish the books. And then I say, um, okay, now, now we're gonna pray. And then we start the prayer, but my sons are sacrilegious. They'll interrupt the prayer. You guys, you can't interrupt the prayer. I'm trying to explain them. This is what we do as Wilkerson's. We pray, and this is a sacred moment. And then every once in a while, they'll get me really upset. I'm like, shut up in the middle of the prayer. Like, that's when you know. And then finally, we finish the prayer, and then dad begins his songs, and I finish my songs. And then I say, all right, give dad a kiss. Wyatt gives me a kiss. I say, Wilde, give me a kiss. He gives me a kiss. And then I say, all right, brothers, give each other a kiss. And Wyatt goes, big kiss. And Wilde goes, no. And Wyatt goes, big kiss. And then he grabs his brother, and he, 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 it's assault is really what happens in the bedroom. And I finally grab Wilde, and I walk him over to his crib, and I, I lay him down in his crib. And then the boys go, pills, pills. We need our pills. And, and their pills are their, are their vitamins. And so I give my sons magnesium every night. I don't know if doctors agree with that or not, but it puts them to sleep, amen? And I come back with pills and then there's two more requests. And then finally, the 45 minute process, there's a method to the madness. They, they go to sleep. Come on, somebody, they, they go to sleep. <laughs> we, we, we all have methods. We all have methods to achieving the plans that we have in our life. Some of our methods happen by default. Other methods happen by design. And last week, we, we took time to preach about the fact that Jesus came to this earth with a mission in mind. Jesus came to this earth to seek and save lost people. He came to save people. And last week, we discovered his mission and we asked the question, are you here on this earth for your mission or for Jesus's mission? Because a lot of people are like, especially Christians, it's confusing. They're like, I'm just looking for my purpose. Yo, you don't have to find your purpose. Just take on Jesus's mission. But today, what I want us to look at is I want us to look at Jesus's method to fulfilling his mission. Ultimately, I, maybe a safe way to say this is, is what was Jesus's method for evangelism? Now, I grew up in a church and I grew up, in, I love my history and I love my background, but I, I, I make jokes at times because sometimes that's the only way to cope. You know, you've got to make fun of where you came from. And so uh, it's my version of therapy. But I came from a church background that was really into evangelism and maybe you did as well. And I'm all about evangelism. I, all about, evangelism is all about sharing your faith. I think all of us should get good at sharing our faith. But like, we grew up being taught how to evangelize. Like I did some stuff, yo. I, I passed out gospel tracts to people. I've knocked on people's doors at 7 a.m. on a Saturday to tell them about Jesus. You're looking for some adventure? You're looking for a thrill? You don't have to do drugs. Go witness, okay? I, I have knocked on, hey, do you know Jesus? Um, and, and one of the methods that I was taught as a young boy about when it came to evangelism was that you would start your conversation and you would ask somebody, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would go? That's great table conversation, by the way. <laughs> if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would spend eternity? It's a heavy question, okay? Um, I'm not even against the question. I think that all of us should spend more time considering the afterlife. All of us should spend more time considering eternity. I, I don't have a problem 
with the intention of the question, I'm just not always sure that the practice and the method is the most effective. I'm not against you deciding today that the way that you wanna share your faith is that you wanna get big signs and go out on the street corner and let people know, follow That's You could do that. I'm not opposed to you going onto people's Instagram wall and, and posting scriptures and preaching your truth. You can do whatever you want. I'm glad that your intention is to see people saved and to meet Jesus. I suppose today, my challenge for our community in this micro collection of here for it, what are we here for? I wonder, do you have the best method? And I just wonder today if I can just try to help you for a moment to find out what was Jesus's method to evangelizing? What was Jesus's method when it came to fulfilling his mission? Because believe it or not, Jesus evangelized a lot of different ways, but maybe the greatest way in which Jesus evangelized is through this practice called hospitality. If you're taking notes down, I I want you to write this because you're like, I can't believe this man has got me here on a Sunday to preach to me about hospitality, but that's exactly why you're here. Um, This is what hospitality means by definition. Hospitality is the friendly reception and the treatment of guests or strangers. Hospitality is the practice of Jesus that turns strangers into friends. And I gotta be really, really honest today. Like once again, there's lots of methods to evangelizing, but I firmly believe that out of all the practices of Jesus's life, that's what we are as disciples. We're following Jesus city. We're following the way of Jesus. We're trying to become more like Jesus. We look at the practices of his life, Sabbath. We look at solitude. Uh, We look at meditation. We look at his prayer life. But out of all of his practices, I actually believe the practice of hospitality might be our most effective way in 2021 to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If I can get anyone to agree today, can you put your hands together? Come on, show me. Come on, city. Come on, church online. Last week, we studied the story found in Luke chapter 19. If you missed that message, I wanna really encourage you, especially if you call Vu home, to go back and listen to the message because I think it's a, an important one. But, but I told you the story of a guy by the name of Zacchaeus, that Jesus was passing through Jericho and this crowd surrounded him. And as he was passing through Jericho, um, there was this man by the name of Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was really short and he wanted to see who Jesus was, but he couldn't see over the crowd. So he runs in front of Jesus. He gets up in this tree and he looks down where Jesus is and Jesus stops in his track and he looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, you come down. I'm going to your house today. And as he goes to Zacchaeus's house, the scripture says that all the people, someone say all the people, all the people begin to mutter and say, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Everybody got really upset with where Jesus was going. And we have to ask the question, why were they upset? The first reason why they were upset is because Zacchaeus is a tax collector. We talked a whole lot about this last week, and so I'm not gonna go back into it, but a tax collector, we don't really have any really great comparison for this in 2021 uh, in America. The best way to think about it is that a tax collector is like at the bottom of the moral ladder. This is a person who is deplorable. This is an evil person. This was somebody that was oppressing their own people, getting rich off of other people. And so the exercise that I asked all of us to do is, I want you to try to think of a person or a type of person, is probably a better way to say it, that you have a hard time empathizing with. Try to think of a type of person 
that you have a hard time showing God's love to. I don't know what type of person that is. Maybe um, in your mind, um, that, that could be the terrorist. I mean, I'm trying to think of extreme things. That could be a, a pedophile. Uh, that could be a, a white supremacist. I don't know in your mind what the archetype of a person that's evil is, but try to think about that person because that's what Zacchaeus represents in the text. When you get that person in your mind, now think about this for a moment. Everywhere you look in the New Testament, Jesus is hanging out with these type of people. Now, if you're honest, how does that make you feel? Like, if you're really honest, like, it's cool to preach, but to really step back and think about it and try to translate it to today, how do you feel with Jesus in a circle with guys who are part of ISIS trying to reach them and trying to save them? I don't know. It's kind of confusing to me. It's pretty radical to say the least. And so when I start to see the text that way, it's like, yeah, I might be a little upset too. It's always easy, right, to preach against the Pharisee until you recognize we all have a Pharisee inside of us. It's always easy to be like, oh, all you religious people, until you're like, I am a religious person. I don't like that. I don't like that level of love. I don't know if I feel okay with that. This is, this is challenging me to a deep level. But it wasn't just the simple fact that he was around this tax collector. The second part that everyone was upset with was that Jesus was gonna share a meal with him. It was about the fact that Zacchaeus was a tax collector and that Jesus was going to break bread with the tax collector. And this is what's wild is that everywhere you turn in the New Testament, Jesus is breaking bread with tax collectors and prostitutes and these people that society says you do not belong. And what does meals represent? Meals represents, they were boundary markers. Meals were not just a way to say who was in. Meals were a particular way to say who is out. And just think about like history for a moment, because this isn't just like Jewish history. This isn't just that time period. Just think about even our modern history. Think about the civil rights movement. Think about that one of the ways that black people in our nation were oppressed was this thing called segregation, that you can't eat in the same place as a white person. What was it? It was a fence to say, I'm going to keep you out. But even now today, if you really think about it, just think about this, the idea of breaking bread and eating and drinking and hospitality. Most of us, if we're being honest in the room, we tend to only eat with people that look like us, think like us, come from our background, have the same skin color as us, are from the same socioeconomic background, have the same level of education. It's just, it's all over the place because it's not even necessarily about racism. It's, there's a thing called classism in this nation. This is big. That's two weeks in a row. Check. How many know the Lord does not, the Lord is, he's, He's trying to speak to us. Is this good? Check, check, check. Am I on? Check, check, check. Check, check, check. Can you hear me? The, the devil. Anytime something technically goes wrong in church, preachers just go, the devil. It's like, no, it's just, it's bad frequencies. But um, that's two weeks in a row. We got to really fix something, folks. Welcome back, Church Online. Um, welcome back, city. We got some crazy feed, uh, feedback and static going on. But it's, it, it, there's this thing called classism in our nation. 
which is that we, we tend to eat with people from the same class as us. How many of you know there's restaurants for the uber wealthy in our nation? There's, there's, there's restaurants for the middle class. And there's, wealth, there's restaurants for, for, for those that are poor. Like just think about how it works. Meals so often represent these, these boundary markers. And here's what's so radical about Jesus is that Jesus was breaking all of the boundary markers. That everywhere Jesus went, he was, he was infiltrating. You, you see, last week, it's from Zacchaeus' house, as Zacchaeus has this conversion moment, that, that Jesus stops. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man, everyone say Son of Man, came to seek and to save that which is lost. Right there from Zacchaeus' home at a meal, not in a church service, but at the table, bread on the table, wine on the table, he stops and he announces the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus was giving us his mission. Everyone say mission. Now, this phrase, Son of Man, it represents an Old Testament language of prophecy. This was Jesus referencing what the prophets had spoken about him, that he is the Son of Man that would come, meaning Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. It's very important that you understand that in Luke's gospel because Jesus only does this two times in Luke's gospel. This is one moment. In a moment, I'm gonna show you the second moment. He's saying, I'm God, and I, as God, came to this earth to seek and save the lost. And where does he do it from? He does it from this meal. Now, now, now the second time that we see him do this is Luke chapter seven. This is all in the same gospel. Luke seven, verse 23, is the other moment where Jesus uses the phrase, son of man. There's a whole lot happening in Luke chapter seven. This is a chapter that's very dear to my heart. I wrote an entire book called Sandcastle Kings off of one chapter in the Bible. It was all from Luke seven. But right here in this story, what's taking place is that John the Baptist is in a prison cell and he's awaiting his execution. And as he's in this prison cell waiting to be executed, he starts to doubt who Jesus is. How many know that when you start going through difficult times, that's when your faith really comes into play? I anybody can serve God on the mountaintop. The question is, can you serve God in the valley? How many know? Prosperity will bring you friends. Poverty will prove your friends. So here's John the Baptist, this great prophet, the last Old Testament prophet that we have. He's in a prison cell and he's about to die. And because of it, he's going, wait a minute, this is not how I thought this whole story would end. I, I actually thought that the Messiah would come, that I would prepare the way and then we would rule and reign right here and now. Why am I in a prison cell and I have obeyed and done my part? And so he sends his disciples to Jesus and he says, hey, are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? How many know that when our expectations aren't met, we start to doubt? He had a different expectation, but Jesus sends back to John. He quotes the prophet Isaiah. He says, the lame walk, the deaf hear, blinded eyes are open and the good news is preached to everyone. And he says, blessed are you, John, if you do not fall away on account of me. It's heavy, heavy lines. Like, I firmly believe that we will face suffering as believers. I firmly believe that suffering oftentimes is a part of God's plan. That suffering, it doesn't have to define our life, but it will refine our life. And he sends back this word. And he's, what he's saying is, John, I'm not gonna save you the way that you wanna be saved. 
John, you're gonna die in that prison, but you will be blessed if you don't give up now. And so they go back with the word. And as they go back with the word, Jesus starts to talk about John. He says, John's really the greatest man ever born of a woman. Says really great things about John. But then he starts to speak to the crowd. And this is where we pick up. This is the second time in Luke's gospel that Jesus refers to himself as God. Watch this. Luke 7, verse 33. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he had demons. It's kind of funny in life because if you live your life for people, you'll discover at some point that you'll never be able to please them. Like, like, like a critical spirit is birthed from the critic. <laughs> and if you're trying to live your life to appease the world, you'll discover you can never please them because here comes John the Baptist. He doesn't eat bread. He doesn't drink wine. They say, that man's got a demon. But the son of man, now he's speaking about himself. He came eating and drinking. And you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. So he's saying, John did none of these things. You said he had a demon. I do these things. And you say, I'm a glutton and a drunkard. What I'm really trying to say is I, I can't please any of you people, but wisdom will be proved right by her children. Meaning you will discover through the fruit of my life and through the fruit of my legacy after I am gone, if what I was talking about and how I was living was meaningful. Luke 19, 10, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus is announcing his mission Luke 7, 33, but the son of man came eating and drinking. Jesus is announcing his method. His method, radical, ordinary hospitality. It is the practice of eating and drinking. Listen to me. I do not believe that Jesus was a drunk nor a glutton, but he must've been doing something to get that reputation. You read Luke's gospel account and in Luke's gospel, there's over 50 recorded moments of Jesus eating and drinking. In fact, uh, Robert Cheris said this about Jesus. In Luke's gospel, Jesus was either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. In Matthew's gospel, there are 94, 94 references of Jesus eating and drinking. In fact, as you continue to read Luke 7, after he makes this announcement about the difference between him and John the Baptist, the next scene is Jesus at a party, hanging out, and a woman who's a prostitute comes in with a jar of alabaster perfume. She lays it on his feet, and there at the place, the Pharisee begins to criticize her. This idea of Jesus eating and drinking really is not the exception. It's the rule of his life. And if we're gonna model our life after Jesus, I believe that you and I, we must make this a practice as well. Because Jesus was not using meals as a boundary marker. He wasn't using meals as a way to keep people out. He was using meals as a way to invite everybody in. Jesus Christ ushered in his kingdom one meal at a time. one meal at a time. I still am an idealist that I actually believe that we could change the world if we could just get people to sit down and have dinner. I mean it. 
in the polarizing world that we live in, on everything that you step on as a landmine and a booby trap and this is loaded and that has a connotation and that means something. What if we could just get back to the practice of Jesus? What if you and I could model and say, you know what, I got a mission, that's to reach people, but the method in which how I'm gonna do it, I'm not gonna get a bullhorn, I'm not gonna get a sign, I'm not gonna write on your Instagram wall, I'm gonna go to the people in my life and I'm gonna open up my dinner table and I'm gonna turn strangers into friends. I'm gonna be hospitable because I believe it is the method of Jesus Christ. Come on, somebody, why don't you go ahead and take five seconds right now, give God some prayer right here at South Miami. Come on, right over there in the city. Go ahead and worship him today. This is who he is. This is who Jesus is. This was his method to evangelism. It just so turns out that the gospel pairs really well with bread and wine. There's something about the dinner table. There's something about sharing a meal. There's something about being hospitable that truth tends to go down better. And so I just want to give us, once again, this is a, this is a micro collection for our house and for our church. This is not for your friends. This is not for the guests. This is for people that call Vu home. And this weekend at team conference, I'm going to put some more legs to all of this that I've been teaching but, but today, I just wanna give us really just three truths, three reminders, if we're gonna walk out the Jesus method, <laughs> the method of Jesus to fulfill his mission, it's hospitality. It's hospitality. It's, it's, it's breaking bread with people. Number one, please write this down. If you care about someone's eternity, show them by serving their reality. So I don't mind at all the question do you know where you would go after you die? I just don't like it when you're doing that as a cold call. It sounds like a cheesy sales pitch. It sounds like I'm just trying to check off a box and I did my part and Lord, I'm the evangelist. No, 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 no. That question really matters. But if you really care about somebody's eternity, show them by serving their reality. This idea of hospitality, it doesn't get preached a whole lot in church, but I just wanna show you that this is like not like some new thought that I have, that this is part of our Bible. This is all over God's word. I can show you scripture after scripture that this is a command from God that we would serve one another. Romans chapter 12, verse 13. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Practice hosting people. Practice turning turning strangers into friends. Welcome people. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. I, don't, I want you to see this because this, this is a powerful connection. It says love covers over a multitude of sins. The, the, the way that we cover a multitude of sins is by offering one another hospitality. I mean, that's, that's incredible to me because some of us, we don't actually recognize how potent and how powerful simply hosting someone can be. Look at what Paul writes to young Timothy. He's given him requirements of leadership. I'm gonna read you seven verses. First Timothy chapter three, verse one. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer, meaning you wanna be a leader in God's house. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, 
That's to live your life in a way that's got character. Faithful to his wife, temperate. That means living a life of moderation, not out of balance, not given over to addictions, not, 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 not actually having a rhythm to your life. Self-controlled, respectable. Watch this, hospitable, hospitable. Able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must, watch this, manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Bars. That's like, whoa, we could talk about that another time. Um, watch this. He must not be a recent convert. You want to lead at Vu Church? Like, it's, it's not that difficult, but you're going to go four weeks to the growth track. <laughs> Why? Because we want to get to know you. We want to tell you about what we believe. We want to discover what you believe. We want to help answer your questions. We're not looking to empower a recent convert. We want to disciple and develop people. He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into all of the devil's traps. I read seven verses because a lot of those things are buzzwords for you. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if you're a leader, you shouldn't be getting drunk. And oh yeah, yeah, you should love and take care of your family. And if you weren't taking care of your family, if you had divorced your wife or if you had abused your kids, of course we would never let you be a leader. And all throughout my life, I've been in church now for 37 years, okay? 37 years. I have watched pastors and leaders be sat down for all different types of things, moral failings, sexual immorality, uh, stealing money, uh, bullying people. Yet in 37 years, I have never ever heard of a pastor being sat down because he hadn't invited anybody to his home in six months. Today, I want to announce that we've had to excommunicate one of our leaders because they have stopped ever inviting strangers into their house. You've never heard of it. But in the same list of all the things you have heard of is that word, be hospitable. Meaning Paul was saying to Timothy, if you wanna lead and if you wanna be here for it and if you wanna build Jesus's mission, you have to open up your life to say, I'm going to serve people. I'm going to be hospitable. Look at Hebrews 13. This is, this is a great scripture. Hebrews 13. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. You have no idea. You have no idea who is in your presence. You have no idea. You ever been to like a restaurant before and like at the end of the restaurant, um, you discovered somebody in the restaurant maybe got your bill. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but it's like, oh my gosh, what? Like, what? Like, oh, God, thank you. Like it, it becomes a holy moment really quick, you know? I think so many of us were so attracted to the supernatural. Angels, angels, the mystical, angels. Wow, I wanna, I wanna be around angels. But what we fail to realize is that we're not looking for somebody who has a halo over their head to go and serve. 
Instead, when we do the ordinary practical thing, according to God's word, it has supernatural implications attached. You want to invite the supernatural into your life? Just, I'm telling you, tomorrow, when you're at Starbucks in line, I dare you, I dare you, person behind you, buy their coffee drink. Get ready. You're about to have a Holy Ghost revival in the Starbucks. That person's like, why, 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 why on earth would you do this? What? Why would, you, why would you get my coffee drink? Whoa, who are you? And you're like, ah, the Lord told me to do it. Whoa, 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 whoa. Oh man, I gotta be honest with you, bro. This is really heavy for me right now because I was coming over here today. I was really discouraged about work. They're gonna be crying at 6 a.m. on a Monday morning at Starbucks, all because you were hospitable, all because you made a decision to do something very simple and practical and you had, had no idea it was attached. This is the method of Jesus. It wasn't just, yo, Zacchaeus, um, you're saved. It's Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house and I'm gonna break bread to break the boundary marker and let all know this is how I fulfill my mission. Number one, if you care about someone's eternity, serve their reality. Number two, write this down. Here we go. This is really good, just helpful stuff. Sermons don't change people. Conversations do. This is important. This is important. So I want to be careful as I'm saying this because you're going, Rich, are you saying sermons don't matter? Of course sermons matter. This is what I've... (laughs) They matter. This is what I've given my life to. But I got to be honest with you, what I've learned and what my job is, is that sermons, they don't change people. Sermons are a catalyst for change. Sermons simply start a conversation. Go through your life. Think about all of your turning moments. Think about the way that God has formed you and your spiritual formation and how you've matured in the Lord and how you have developed. Sure, you probably heard a teaching or you had a moment in God's presence, but then it was followed up with conversations that put legs and practicality to what it is that God was calling you to do. Have you ever wondered, Have you ever wondered, how on earth did Jesus, this Jewish rabbi, how did this Jewish rabbi with 12 uneducated fishermen, peasants, farmers, how on earth did they change the world in the way that they did? I mean, have you ever, I mean, like, how did this thing spread? How did this thing grow so much? It's really uh, amazing because in the fourth century, around 330, 30 AD, there was this Roman em, uh, emperor named Constantine. And, and Constantine plays a big part in all of our story because Constantine, although he lived like a pagan, he, he made a decision right near his death to make the official religion for the world at that time, Christianity. That was a whole lot of reasons why he did it, but most would agree that the main reason why he did it was because um, he had this uh, he had this cultural minority that had become this uh, political uh, majority. That what had taken place was this, this group of people, these, 
Jewish people that had converted now to following the way of Jesus were now actually spreading it to also Gentiles, those that were in the Roman Empire that weren't born of a Jewish faith or culture. And this thing that started so small had now spread so rapidly that he had to make a good political move. Otherwise he would be overtaken or he wouldn't be popular. And so he said, oh wow, everybody is getting converted and everybody's becoming a Christian. And so I'm just gonna make it the official religion. But even that, like how did that happen? fourth century. Just understand, like this is before the internet. This is before Instagram clips. It was illegal. It was illegal to be a Christian. You would be put to death. You couldn't get up and preach like this and you couldn't have Aiden King come in and lead you in worship and you didn't have lights and you didn't have a guy with a microphone. There wasn't speakers. There wasn't ways to amplify the voice. How on earth did this thing that started from such a small place grow so rapidly? I will tell you, it happened through the practice of eating and drinking and through conversations around the person of Jesus that they could not stop the mission being fulfilled. This is why we challenge everybody who's a part of VU to be a part of a crew. Because what's a crew? A crew is just a small group of people that get together and have a conversation around Jesus. It's actually a staple to the Christian faith. It's actually what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's not about just sermons. It's actually about conversations that Jesus would be on your tongue all week long, that you would be opening up your home, that at your dinner table, you would stop and you would pause and you would invite his presence into that place. And you would discover that your table becomes his table. I'm just gotta be honest with you as the worship team comes up here, like as I look at Jesus's life, as I look at Jesus's life, when it came to his method of fulfilling his mission, sure, there was moments that he got up and he preached fiery sermons. There is no doubt about it. This man said heavy stuff. You brood of vipers, like you whitewashed tombs. He went hard. I think what I'm learning from Jesus is that if you're in front of a conservative group of people that already believe in a God and already have some sort of figment of what God is and who God is, sure, grab a microphone, hoop and holler and preach with every bit of fire you got inside of you and let it rip, share the truth, be bold with the truth. But friend, if you're talking to somebody who has been deeply hurt by the church, if you're talking with somebody who feels like they do not belong, if you're hanging with somebody who's on the fringe, if you're hanging with somebody that doesn't even believe in God, maybe have the sensitivity and maybe have a level of empathy to say, you know what? Why don't you come over to my house? And let's just break bread. Let's have a glass of wine and let's just let the conversation begin. I don't have all the answers, but I know the answer. And I see Jesus preach bold message, but I also see Jesus allow prostitutes to come close to him. I see him with tax collectors that were deplorable and he allows them to sit at his table and he has conversations. And it's not the sermon that changes them. It's the conversation that does. It's the method of Jesus. Lastly, as we, as we close, my third and final point is simply this. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. 
And I've said this a lot of times at VU, and I just want to get it in our heart again. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. This is who we are. And today, like, I don't want you to like walk out and be like, that's it. Okay, every Friday night, we have to have, you know, Shabbat dinner and like, it's gotta be perfect. And now, there's a difference between hosting and entertaining. Some of you, you get lost in the entertainment side. That's not what we're talking about. Hosting starts in your heart and then it shows up in your actions. For one, practically right now, like, I know you can't change the whole world, but you could start getting in a crew. You could sign up and say, I, I could lead a crew. I know enough about Jesus at this point. I'm not perfect, but I know who he is. I trust in God's word. I, I'd love to lead a crew. I'd love to create a place where strangers can become friends. Practically, make a decision. Every time I go to church, after church, I'm going to a meal with somebody. Just basic little traditions and systems that you can create in your life. I'm not gonna come to service and then just go home and go back to my regular routine. I'm gonna come to church and then I'm gonna go and have a meal with someone. If I come in the night, I'm gonna go have dinner. If I come in the morning, I'm gonna go and have lunch. I'm going to break bread and have a conversation around what it is that we just learned and what it is that we just talked about because it's not the sermon that's gonna change me. The sermon was a catalyst to start a conversation and I can't do it for everyone, but I could invite someone today from the courtyard. I could invite someone today in the city. Just do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Sometimes we get so overwhelmed. I can't, oh, I just, I want to do more. But it's this desire to do more that sometimes renders us to doing nothing. This idea that I'm here for it, I'm joining, I'm, 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 I'm on the co-mission with Jesus. I got a co-mission. He doesn't need me, but he wants me. Whew. I know what his mission is, is to seek and save lost, those that are, that are on the outside. He wants to make them come on the inside, but his method, it's not a bullhorn. It's not a, it's not a blog post. It's not nasty comments. It's not tweeting at people. It's, it's just ordinary hospitality that has radical implications. It's amazing because um, we get the word hospitality from the word hospital. And hospital comes from a Latin word, hospice, which is this idea of the guest, guests, um, strangers and foreigners becoming our guests, that we would look after them, that we would host them. It's amazing because um, I know in the world that we live in today, there's a whole lot of people that would like to create a new narrative around Christianity. There's a whole lot of people that would like to declare that Christianity is an oppressive movement, that Christianity has held people back. And no doubt there's, there's truths to different parts of our movement that we're not proud of all of our history. But if you actually study our history, almost any historian would have to agree that Christianity has done more for hurting and broken people than any other movement on the planet. Did you know that hospitals were started from fourth century Christians? Because they took these words and said, wow, I don't know what that person believes, but if they're sick in their body and we have a way to treat it, let us be the ones to go first. I, I don't know if they'll ever join us or not, but whether they ever get converted and whether they ever get saved for eternity, I care so much about their reality because he's already, he's already purchased mine. We have hospitals today because of the Christian movement. One time I was talking to someone about my faith. And at the end of it, they said, Rich, 
It sounds like your faith is like a crutch. Like you just kind of use that all the time for any time you don't have an answer for something or any time you can't logically explain something. It seems like you're using Jesus as a crutch. I said, oh no, you got it wrong. My faith is not a crutch. My faith is a stretcher. <laughs> I'm not leaning on Jesus. He is carrying me every step of the way. I would not be here today without his love, without his mercy, without his grace. He served me, therefore I can serve others. He changed me. He invited me into his mission. And now I got one mission. I got one purpose to share that love with every person that I meet. This church, it is not a country club. This church is a hospital for the broken, the hurting, the lost, whoever you are, you are welcome at the table of the Lord. Come on if you believe it. Give God some praise. Lift your hands. Come on, lift your voice. Come on, worship Him. Well, thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you like what you're hearing, consider rating it and even sharing it with friends. It helps so much. For more content from VU and to connect with us, go to vuchurch.com. We love you. The best is yet to come.